Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Rolling. Take one. I can get my uh, harmonica. Fine. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Land. This is a podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Banya. And I'm Eric. On this episode, we're talking to photographer and YouTuber Jess Hobbs. We'll also break out the lab jackets and talk about the science behind film and development. Not only that, we'll welcome the film detectives. They're together again for the first time. And I've always wanted to say that about something. And now it's kind of true. We've also got some great answering machine responses and a really incredibly special zine review that I am personally very excited about. And a whole bunch more, I'm sure. But first, Wanya? Yes. How are you doing? Oh my gosh. It's crazy over here. Busy, busy, just moving along, trucking along. I uh, I think I have a, a buyer for my dark room or my trailer. It's not a dark room anymore. So that's a little sad. It is a little sad. Yeah. 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 It's a little sad, but it's okay. It just brings me one step closer to getting an, another one at some point. I'm hoping that's kind of the plan. Uh, I started school uh, a couple weeks ago. I kind of haven't really mentioned it. No, uh, not at all. What do you, I mean, I know what you're, what you're schooling about, <laughs> but what are, tell the listeners at home what you're learning. I'm going to school to be a stripper. Wow. And right now it's all correspondence. So it's really, really awkward. <laughs> it is. Uh, I'm actually going to school uh, for EMS, emergency medical services. Uh, I am trying to get certified as a emergency medical technician. Uh, that's kind of just like the start of what I want to do. There's a lot of options there. Uh, lifeguard, search and rescue, uh, maybe eventually a paramedic, uh, something. So yeah, this is just kind of the start of this. I've always wanted to do this my entire life, honestly. And I think I was just scared because I'm super emotional. How's it going so far? Has it been a breeze? Oh my God, it's terrifying. I just finished my uh, my preparation course and I passed it, so that's good. And now I'm just like in class and it's not like in class, like how I used to be in class 20 years ago where you would, you know, like smoke a bunch of pot in the bushes and then go into class. This is like sitting at my computer having to listen and then also follow along and answer questions as well. So you're just like, they're making sure that you're paying attention basically. And then on Sundays, I will be doing like skill days where I will spend all day, eight to six, doing fun skill things. So this past Sunday uh, was my first skill day, and I'm hoping it went well. <laughs> we're, uh, um, we're recording a, a touch early, so. A little bit, yeah. I I think the what I'm struggling with the most is I have zero experience learning online, so it is like extremely confusing. I don't understand. Uh, they have like four different websites that I have to link together. It's kind of a nightmare, but I've already been like kind of discussing it with one of the ladies there. And she's just like, you can come on Sunday. We'll figure it out. I'm like, okay, because I am just like, I think they're, I'm not seeing everything that you guys are seeing, but I think I'm there. So yeah. Uh, so that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop taking pictures, but it 
does have a lot to do with why I've been a little bit um, missing in action on Instagram. And then also here, you kind of been uh, kind of helping with uh, carrying some some of my weight, which I always appreciate. But I'm not going anywhere. This is just me adding more things to my schedule because uh, that's what I do. I overdo everything. <laughs> Why do something when you can just overdo it instead? Uh, let's see. Hmm, I'm 39. Let's do a career change. <laughs> it's never too, well, I guess I would say it's never too late, but it's not too late for you now. No, but this is also like not even just a career change. This is something I've just wanted to know and learn. I've yeah. always wanted to be prepared for any situation. I think it's really important. Also, I have either good or bad luck because for some reason people stroke out and almost die in front of me constantly. So <laughs> Constantly. Everywhere you go, they're just stroke victims. It's weird. Like I feel like I am put in that situation a lot. I don't know why. Uh, and I... I always try to do my best to help, but being actually like technically like certified would be amazing because then I will know exactly what to do. And I like to help. I think it's important. A lot of people saved my life several times in my life, uh, my family's life several times in their life as well. Uh, we've definitely used uh, 911 and emergency services. Yeah, I just want to do something that's not just for me, but for everybody. So love you guys. Aww. Wish me luck. <laughs> well, I'm sure we all do, but you'll do it. You'll, you'll, you'll get it. It's going to be tough, but you got this. Yes. I'm trying my best. Uh, you've been very sweet. He gave me a body book. Uh, well, that, that, that sounds really, yeah, that sounds really weird. <laughs> okay. Let me explain. When I went to the Getty, I was explaining that they had this exhibit uh, and there was like an old human body book and it was a pop, it was like a pop out one. So when you open the page, like little parts of your body, it's not <laughs> like all the anatomy better at all. I know, I know all the anatomy like shows every single section. It was just really cool. And he actually listened to me say that because he got me a present. He got me a book and it's a pop up book with all kinds of awesome brains and eyeballs and veins and things. And I love it. So thank you. You know, I, I do what I can. It was either that or Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the pop-up book. Interesting. That's something we should look into. Ooh, maybe they can tell me what layer of meat is good for, for uh, jerky. Um, yeah, I, I wouldn't, <laughs> I'd be no help whatsoever on that. Okay, so <sighs> that has been what I've been up to. So how about you, Eric? What have you been up to? That was a hell of a week or a week and a half for you. For me... I have been, well, you were sick a couple of weeks ago and you gave it to me. Here we go. See, I'm somehow blamed. <laughs> and while I didn't have COVID, I had um, I had a really nasty cold or flu or I, I don't know. It was a bunch of yuck. And I felt miserable and horrible and I'm just now getting over it. I'm taking cough syrup now like I'm, in, like, I'm like, a, like a kindergartner or something. Tussin, huh? I, I, yeah, Tussin DM. Is it the cherry or the grape flavor? Oh, it's like this weird, like raspberry mint flavor. Like, why? Ooh. Why are you doing this? Cherry okay, was first of fun. all. Cherry was disgusting. But that, but that's the taste of childhood. It was. And so when like I hiding when I, when under I, the table, like don't want to take don't it. Don't want to take it. No, my mom would like 
fill up like a quarter and then fill up the rest with water so it would dilute it and then do like four times. Oh God, I don't know if that's, I think that might be worse. And that's probably why she did it. <laughs> a little sadistic. Evil. But when I when I went to taste it, I was expecting cherry and I was expecting like, oh, well, this is going to taste like being sick when I was a kid. And mm-hmm. it was like this weird raspberry mint flavor, which is disgusting. And I'm, cherry was disgusting too, but at least that tasted like childhood. This, no. So I'm just getting over that now. I'm, I think my voice is is almost to where, where it's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. I'm still coughing a little bit, thus the tussin. Uh, but I haven't done anything at all because of this. I was really laid up. The one thing that happened during when I was sick was the Etsy strike that like, four people went on. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I have to undo that. I have to. Uh, I'm still on strike, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I have a lot of thoughts about this. And the reason we went on on strike, and this was supposedly a big thing, and I don't think it really did anything, was to tell Etsy that like we, we don't want their 30% raise in their, uh, in, in the fees, in the listing fees or whatever it was. And while that's all true, Etsy doesn't give a shit. (laughs) And it's pretty obvious they don't care because, well, I, I, for, for that week and continuing, I switched to big cartel, which is if you're very small and don't sell much, you, uh, it's a pretty good platform. It's, it's free until you get more than five listings and the only fees that you pay are like PayPal fees. So it's like regular credit card transaction fees. So much, much, much better than Etsy. Except that while I normally sell on Etsy maybe six, seven zines a week and five or six ECN2 kits, I sold three zines and zero ECN2 kits. So Etsy kind of has you and that sucks. It's been intense. They've been asking a lot. And to the point where it's like, I'm not sure if a person that is making something, it's worth spending all this money. Like there is even like, I just learned, I didn't even know that Etsy has these um, outside uh, campaigns. So if you, yeah, Yeah, you have to opt out. It's hard I know a lot of you guys, you know, if you're selling your prints, it's like, what's the best way to do this? Like, how how do we become creative, get to sell our, our things and, and kind of fund our, our projects and stuff without having to pay these giant fucking corporations uh, to take advantage of us all the I mean, time? Basically, if your customers are coming from your website or social media, don't use Etsy. There's no reason to. But if it's something that somebody's going to search for on Etsy, like ECN2 kits, then there's not much of a choice there. You kind of have to go that route. But if you're selling your zine and you're just like posting on, on, or even your prints and you're posting it on social media saying, hey, I've got these things for sale, just do something like Big Cartel. You're gonna, you're gonna end up pocketing a lot more money and not having to deal with Etsy. Etsy's slightly more convenient here and there. But not much. Ah, boy. Unless you're like a very established business, I think it's back to punk rock for us, really. You know, it's sending $3 in the mail and uh, we'll send you something back when we get it. That's pretty much how it's going to be. Oh, my gosh. I just learned something the other day that is like insane. What's that? So, you know, like if you go to Walmart or PetSmart or any of these big corporations, they ask if you want to round up your purchase. Oh, yeah. Fuck that. Well, I, of course I say no, because I'm like an asshole, I guess. And they're like, do you want to donate here? Do you want to donate there? And I'm like, no, I don't actually, you should donate for me. Well, 
in fact, they do donate. They donate. And then what they do is they write that off because yeah, of it's donation. And yeah. then they take what you donated and they keep that. Yeah. <laughs> so you're just donating to the company so they can donate. And that's bullshit. So yeah, if you go to a store and you see they have like, oh my God, I want to donate to this really awesome charity. I want to give my 74 cents to this really awesome charity. Just go home and donate to that really awesome charity. Yep. Skip skip Walmart. Honestly, <laughs> I think we're a little feisty this episode. I know, I love it. It's so much fun. Maybe not as feisty as last episode, but you know, pretty feisty. Each wonderful episode, we put on our house slippers, our cozy cardigans, nuzzle up in our big comfy chairs, and check our answering machine, which must be located directly on the table next to the comfy chair. Yes, of course. Every episode, we ask our, our wonderful listeners to call in and leave us a message answering whatever weird-ass question that we come up with. And Vanya, what was the question for this episode? Uh, first of all, before I touch the answering machine, I accidentally touch the touch lamp next to the answering machine. So the light comes on too. So that's pretty cool. Okay, cool. I mean, I thought we'd have it up hooked up to the clapper by now, but fine. No. Did you ever have a clapper? No. Really? I wanted one for Christmas one year. And I asked my mom, like, mom, get me a clapper. And she was like, what? Why? Like, What? Why? Why would you not want to get me a clapper? And they got me a clapper one year for Christmas. Alexa is basically the clapper of the. Yeah, it's like the smart clapper. I think that. Clapper okay, question. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what has convinced you that you have taken a bad photo? And what's kind of interesting is we're recording on the day that our dev party comes out, where we kind of broke down what we meant by good photo. And so the vast majority of people who have called in, called in before listening to that episode. So we're getting kind of another like raw answers here without our weird little input. So stop fucking with the touch lamp and <laughs> push the button. Okay. Hello, this is Johnny. I'm sorry. I think for me, if I call a photo bad, more often than not, it's a story about my expectations for it. Uh, you know, how often have we seen somebody post a supposed failure of an image only to get this outpouring of support and enthusiasm for how much people like it because they're viewing it through a different perspective than the person who originally took it? Uh, you know, for me, I think that's true, too. I get my hopes up about something looking one way, and then it's slightly blurry or slightly out of frame or slightly out of alignment. Not so much that I can accept it as a different unintended image, just kind of a miss relative to what I was trying. Uh, I, that's one big one. The other big one, I guess, is with photos of people. And sometimes, just undeniably, somebody's face comes out looking real rough and you're like, well, man, I can't really share this with them. And that's a bummer. Uh, yeah, I think the expectations thing is really a, a that was with a lot of the, the answers with the, uh, what makes a good photo as well, is if you meet your expectations. So it makes sense that if you don't meet your expectations. But what do you think about the people's faces? I don't shoot people necessarily all that much at all. So I don't have a problem with like, you know, 
an old shitty house giving me the wrong look or, you know, um, a flower blinking. It's not really an issue I have. It's definitely a big thing where most people are used to a cell phone. I just took a picture of somebody recently. It was like a family portrait. Like, oh, would you like me to just take a few pictures on your phone? And they said, yes. So I took like 35 pictures. Like, here you go. Hopefully one of those you like because... (laughs) That's kind of what we do. I mean, have you ever seen like a girl that is super really good at selfies? Have you ever actually watched her go I'm, through like the, the <laughs> selfie actually. thing? It's insane. I know a few people like that. And I just like sit there and watch like, this is incredible. Um, they're really good at it. So I'm really bad. Every picture of me is bad. Oh, I don't like them. At all. I don't I don't like any pictures of me. And it's fine. Like well, I, it's not a big thing. deal. I just I just don't feel comfortable, I guess. So I just think I look bad. And I think a lot of people that maybe have some insecurities probably feel the same way. So I think it's really hard for someone to get a good picture of me. So when they do, it is kind of like incredible. If I get an all-black or an all-white frame, then I feel like I haven't really taken a photo. But I know that I've taken a bad photo when I really want it to be good, and I sit there and I edit it and I edit it and try to crop it or change this or that, and I just can't get there, and I start thinking more and more about how I want to take the photo differently. And it starts to look more like a trial run. And if the photo is a trial run for a good photo, then it's probably not the good photo itself. Yeah, we did a whole thing on reshoots. And I guess that's sort of the beginning of the reshoot because mm-hmm. you don't know you're going to do a reshoot when you first take the, the shot. And so you take the shot and you're like, I think this is going to be good. And you get home and, and you, you try, you struggle so hard to make that a, a good photo. And you can't put lipstick on a pig. I mean, you can. You probably shouldn't. Vanya's kind of marinating really struck home. I often have to let a photo fade from my memory so that I can stop trying to see it for what it, what I wanted it to be and see it for what it actually is and, you know, appreciate it properly. The bad photo then is one where I really struggle to let go and I keep editing and tweaking a photo, trying to make it what I wanted it to be when it really isn't that and that I'm forced eventually to let go. Let go of your expectations sometimes yeah. and that's really hard to do. Yeah, let the photo be good or bad on its own without your expectations. Well, I mean, if we're framing a a shot where we're expecting it to be a specific thing, so having no expectations is really almost impossible. It is, yeah. But you could practice that in places where you photograph a lot. You could. So somewhere where it's not a big deal to get in your car and drive there at any given day would be a perfect place to kind of start doing that because then you're not necessarily worried or stressed that you have to get this shot. You're very detached. I don't exactly. know how great that is for... Relationships? <laughs> Probably not very good, but for... Yeah, I don't know. Well, okay. Fair enough. <laughs> the thing that probably most convinces me that I take a bad photo is usually insecurity but also if I just completely missed focus. I like when people can take really good out of focus pictures, but I haven't been able to convince myself that I've taken one. I try to think less in terms of good and bad these days and more in terms of did I accomplish what I wanted? And also I know that I won't always know instantly. Jamie Maldonado, Jamie M Photo. 
I think it goes back to the marinating, you know, you letting it sit a little bit that you don't, you won't know right away. Yeah, I think so too. I've seen some photos that that are blurry and they look like, oh, these are really amazing. Like you're getting that, that perfect blur. And then I have like a, a, you know, a billion photos that I misfocus on and are blurry. I'm just like, this is such shit. What was I doing? And I don't know if it's just I'm hypercritical or. I think it has to be intentional. Maybe. I don't, I mean, I don't know if it does because I don't know if this, this blur was intentional in these other people's photos. There's no way for me to know that. Okay. So I have talked about this before, how I want to show, I want to photograph movement in a new way for myself, not a new way, because obviously there's no new way, but doing it with a little bit of speed blur and softness would be awesome. So like surfing, for instance, I've seen some people do it and it's okay, but it's not exactly what I'm looking for. It's probably something that I'll have to work on forever, but the the fluidity of like the water um, is kind of what I'm thinking of as far as like capturing the movement. I think when you look at a picture like that, the first thing that you, or at least the first thing that I'm hopefully thinking is that that is a moving picture. Like it's moving and you can experience that with the photograph. And that's the part that you need to capture. <laughs> well, I think you you accomplished that a little bit when you were shooting that really low ISO microfilm, the Tasma Micrat. Oh God, yeah. That was six ISO in the water. Yes, yep. So I think, yeah, you think you, you did a bit of that. I know I have a roll of a, I have like a hundred feet of that. I really need to shoot it. I, I, I have, yeah, I've got oh. a bunch. I'm, I cleaned out my, my film fridge this past week mm. and I have, I've got some bulk for uh, bulk 35 that I'm not really sure what to do with at this point. Just and give it to me. We, we will see. I've got some I'll bulk loaders and we'll see what happens with them. <laughs> hey there guys. Um, David calling in again. Uh, and I would say a bad photo, I have a lot of bad photos, but some of them are like developer error or camera error, uh, some random shots that you took with accidentally pressing the shutter, but I would say sometimes it's just ones that are very blah, like ones that don't speak to you and just, I mean maybe to some people they might be cool, but for me it's like they were just seemed like a waste of film. That's usually when I think it's a bad photo. Finishing a roll, the last, like, it just happens every time, especially if I'm shooting 35. The last six pictures are usually throwaway pictures, and I hate that because I've never shot a throwaway picture that I liked. They're all throwaways. Could you do something interesting, like something with some weird technique where, I don't know, you, yes. sh trying to shoot blur or something, just something you can do really easily, just kind of thoughtlessly. And, and then, well, maybe they'll still come out like a happy accident or something. Yes, that's what I would like. I'm impulsive. It's difficult for me to plan that out, but okay. I would like to do that. Okay, sure. As far as like mistakes, I wouldn't consider that a bad photo. Mistakes are mistakes. So if you develop and you made a mistake, you know how to fix that. I think I, think I would consider a bad photo something that you thought was a good photo and you thought that you framed it well. And then looking back, you're like, oh shit, this is really bad. <laughs> that's just, yeah, that's just, that, that's kind of a worse than a bad photo. That's just like a kick in the photography junk. <laughs> it happens think, well, to everybody though. It shouldn't, I mean, it, it? yes, it hurts, but I mean, what do you, like, you're some like egomaniac that can't like, you know, 
realize that we all take bad photos? Well, no, of course not. But a lot of the photos I take are hours, if not weeks away to get back mm-hmm. to. So mm-hmm. I take a photo and I'm like planning this photo and I set it all up and I, and I try to get everything just perfectly. And I think I do. And then something happens later where I look at the photo, you know, wonderfully developed or whatever, yet it just didn't work. Yeah. And that's, you know, it didn't work for an obvious reason. And that's, that sucks. But also, yeah, I mean, I agree. The blah photos, they're sort of like that weird, like, like dull surprise. It's, uh, it's just sort of like, oh, I wasn't expecting this to be so meh. It reminds me of getting your pictures developed back in the day and you get your pictures finally, one hour photo, three days, whatever you paid for. You get in your car and you open the envelope up to look at them. And the blah pictures are the ones that you skip while you're looking for the yeah. one that you wanted to to see. Hey, Eric and Vanya. This is Steve.Abbott, A-B-B-O-T-T-T on Instagram. And what always has me convinced I've taken a bad photo is my inner critic constantly. Every single time. And it's not always right in your face that you suck. You just took a shitty photo. A lot of times it's very, very subtle in ways like I would take a photo and then for the next, I don't know, two hours ruminate that, oh, I should have composed it like this or like that. And why do I even bother? <laughs> so it's uh, it's constant, ongoing, and it always, always happens. Yeah. There's also the, uh, oh, I'm going to go over here and take a shitty picture. I'll be right back, which I get into a little bit. You're having a bad, a bad day. And that's just one of those, like, I know I'm going to fuck this up. You definitely and, do that. I've seen you do that. Yeah, it sucks. It's, 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 it's hard to get out of that mentality. And I, and maybe on, you know, maybe on Dev Party, we'll talk a little bit more to that, mm-hmm. you know, how to get yourself out of that mentality. Cause I, I need to figure that out. Cause there are some days where I barely shoot because I'm just like, everything I touch turns to garbage and flies. So well, sometimes you have to call it. I've done that with developing. Like if I make too many mistakes, I'll just call it and be like, you know what? I'm done for the day. I can't. Yeah. I, I'm like, I can't even right now. <laughs> that's nice. A lot of times, like well, if I'm on the road, I have a, a place where I need to get and, and places in between that that I need to shoot. So I can't call it unless I just want to skip all of those places. You know, I have to figure out a way to just be like, okay, cut the shit, man. And, and, get your head back in the game and some other sports things that... Yeah, you got to put a lipstick on the pig and stuff. That's right. Put that lipstick on that peg and get out there and shoot the home team. I'm, I, make a really, I make a really awful coach. The realization that we are our worst critic is... It's it's obvious. It's true. It happens. That's what we do. We're we're going to beat ourselves up more than anybody else. Usually, I would hope so. Because so, if they do that, then that's. I mean, your friends obviously should give, you know, valid opinions and honest opinions. But but also, we're going to be our worst, and that's with everything. So, if we're our own worst critics, wouldn't it make sense 
And it wouldn't it be like a service to the photography community if we were just complete dicks to everybody so that they're not their own worst critic. We are your worst critic. No, that's awful. I don't think that's awful. I think it's okay. Yeah, we just have to be encouraging as much as possible. Oh, one or the other. So I thought about this question about, you know, is there a diff- you know, the difference between like mechanical failures and just, you know, the camera misfires or you don't, you're trying something and it doesn't work um, versus just like a bad photo. So the one that immediately came to mind, I broke the rule I had in my head of there's just stuff I don't shoot pictures of. And I broke that rule for a shot. There was a uh, there was a dude with like a 40 and he passed out underneath a cross on, in front of a shelter. And the juxtaposition was just off the charts. And, and I broke the rule and I took the picture. And even though the shot came out, I felt really bad about it. <laughs> and like, I don't show it. It's just, yeah, that was the line. I have a couple of those. I don't. I mean, I, it's, I think it's really important to have rules for yourself in photography. You know, it, it's important to to not break them because of, of what J. David was saying. <laughs> You're going to regret it. So have them. I think it's great having them. Rules are great, but also bending rules and breaking them are, are good too. So I don't know. <laughs> I'm of two minds with this one. <laughs> hey, Eric and Vanya. This is Chris Demore, first time caller. I wanted to answer the question of how do you know you've taken a bad photograph? I think for me, it's when I've inadvertently tried to emulate something I've seen elsewhere or other photographers. I think Instagram is a great tool for networking and and meeting other people, other photographers, but it tends to create these feedback loops where things start to look similar to each other and trends start to snowball. And I think as as long as I'm cognizant of that and I realize it, I I can get back to how I usually take a photograph without those kinds of influences. Thanks. There's a shot I want to take. It's the furry cow shot with the horns, like those little adorable furry cows. I don't know what they're called. They're like from another country, but they're furry. And I've seen so many pictures of those. Oh, really? But I still want to take it. It's still a photo I want to take. (laughs) Well, you can, I mean, they're cows. You can, you can, you can't really pose them anyway, but you, you can maybe, you know, get them to stand in a different way? Or? You and I both know that cows do not give a shit about me at all. They know no. that I want to be their friend and they're just like, fuck you. <laughs> we don't like you. I don't have that problem with Instagram. Really? Yeah, where I, where I see like the same trends and all of that. And I'm not, I'm not sure why. I like having a, like a photographically diverse feed. Mm-hmm. And if you if you can kind of game the algorithm a little bit by liking wow. things that you like and not liking things that you don't and you know making sure you always like the kinds of photos posted by a certain photographer or whatever. So I see, you know, I see a mix of landscape, portrait, weird shit. I see a lot of weird shit. I don't photograph weird shit. So seeing weird shit is is really wonderful. And actually hmm. I see very few photos like the ones I take and that's purposely done. You know, if I see a photographer shooting like uh, pretty much like ident- very identical things to me. I tend not to follow them. I, I haven't really been on Instagram and I haven't really been as active as I usually am. Okay. I'm a little frustrated because 
I do follow a lot of people and I still feel like I see the same like 20 people. And then they also send me sponsored posts like, hey, um, because you liked this picture, you would like this picture. And I'm just like, dude, how about you just show me the people that I follow? <laughs> like, well, you can turn off the suggested photos. What? So, yeah. Damn it. You can turn right, it off. You're going to have to show me how to do that. Well, when you see one, you can little click a little three, the three little dots there. Mm. And it says, I think it says like, pause it for 30 days. Just do that every oh, 30 days. my gosh. Yeah. You know, I'm wondering when I die, I want someone to count all the hours I spent unsubscribing to bullshit emails and turning off and muting fucking notifications in my life. Because I'm sure I'm in years by now. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I don't know with Instagram, I guess I would suggest maybe following hashtags. I know that someone, someone messaged me and said hashtags are dead. And I'm, I'm sorry, they're not. They People still use them. And I some search of them, things. Uh, yeah, some of them are hashtags. very active. So um, maybe the hashtags you are following are dead, maybe. But, you know, there's a lot out there that's not. And so you do get people, you get new people mm -hmm. on, on, constantly, people you don't follow. And I think that's really, really wonderful. And so I don't see, you know, a lot of the same stuff. I follow a lot of women and they generally post a lot of different things, a lot more of a difference than I think men do, generally speaking. I don't see a lot of, of the same stuff that I shoot because I'm a man and I shoot kind of, I don't know, manly photos. I don't know if you'd call my photos manly. Man-esque? Man-adjacent? Hmm. I don't know. That's hard. I'm trying to remember when I first started following you because I couldn't figure out, figure you out. I was like, who is this person? They're fucking weird, number one. For sure weirdo. I didn't have a photo of myself up there. I don't think no. I do now either. No. I don't either. No. Which is hilarious because when I get new people messaging me and they're like, thanks, dude. Or like, they think I'm a dude. I always think that's funny. I'm like, hey. I mean, I legitimately thought you were a sleaze stack for, for years. <laughs> Marley's, uh, I don't know if I told you this, but we watched the newer Land of the Lost, I don't know, when she was younger. That's the Will Ferrell one? Yes. Okay. And the Sleestacks were like her worst nightmare. She like is still terrified of that. And it is kind of fucked up that I have a Sleestack as my profile picture, but you know. Were they like, did they look basically the same? Yeah. Is they Okay. Yeah. And they're scary. I guess, yeah. I don't know. It didn't scare me when I was a kid, which really? is weird because that was- They're fucking creepy, dude. Yeah. I don't know what scared me. A kiss scared me as a kid. Jason Lake scared me. Jason like, Lake? No, like Lakes, like Jason was oh. going to like grab me. Oh, sure. Yeah. That, no, I wasn't. No. Kiss with like when, when Gene Simmons would like have like blood come out of his mouth. Yeah. That that freaked me out as a kid. How do you feel about him now? He still freaks me out. <laughs> he just seems he like like half the shit that he says, like, okay, yeah, sure, sure, okay. And the other half is like, man, you are fucked up. But you know, he's just like a rich old guy. So that's sort yeah. of par for the course. I then. never like my family didn't listen to Kiss, so I don't really no. have any kind of connection to them. The only connection I have is that he puts ice in his cereal. And so we're homies now, basically. That's true. Thank you, everybody, for calling. We we do appreciate it. Vanya, what will be the question for the next episode? Spring is soon here, but is it worth it? <laughs> That's it. That's the question. Is spring, spring, is it worth it? That's not the question. 
which do you like shooting better, spring or fall, and why? Yes, and and be creative here. I'm interested. We almost in never cut people out, and we didn't this time either. But you know, if we, there's a lot of just like spring, bye. I would like to know where they reside. Yeah. Yeah, I think absolutely. that has a lot to do with what their answer might be. Yeah, West Coast spring, East Coast fall. That's maybe where we're thinking, but hey, we could be wrong. We're the Film Detectives. We're here to investigate mysteries, queries, quandaries, and even some drama related to photography. I'm Charlie. And I am Sarah. I'm bringing to you the case of the Phantom Followers. This case started months back when... I was opening my Instagram app and I saw a picture of someone that I follow and it was a good picture and I liked it. And I kind of took note that it had just been posted and I was one of like the first 10 followers. And I thought, that's funny. So then I went back five minutes later, 10 minutes later, whatever, open it up. And you know how sometimes it does that little bit of stutter before it refreshes and brings you a new picture? Yeah. It, It updated the follower count. And then brought me a new picture. But in that second before the new picture loaded, I saw that that number had gone to thousands. And I thought, I know the algorithm has favorite children, Mm -hmm. but that seems ridiculous. Yeah, that's some extreme favoritism. So, and it's like 2000 likes on this. So I open it up and I start going through them and I launch an investigation. I realize through my investigation that a lot of these followers are bought. That's a homophone for those of you that don't know. So I'm going to spell it out right now. They're both bots, B-O-U-G-T-H, and also bot, B-O-T. Oh, you even got me. I was like purchased, but yeah. They are purchased robots. They are robots available for purchase. And they had been purchased to supply likes to this particular photograph. And So how do you figure that out? I'll tell you later. But first, I have some questions for you. Put yourself in the shoes that you maybe don't know anything about this person personally. But now you know this one fact, and that fact is they, for whatever reason, have purchased non-organic likes for their picture. Do you, mm. does that make you think a certain thing about this person? Do you hold it against them, I guess is what I'm getting to. Yeah, this is interesting because I would want to say, like, it depends on what else I know about this person and what else they put on there. But if, if I'm just judging based on the fact that this photo is gorgeous and all these likes are fake, I kind of want to say it does make me feel a certain way about this person. Um, To me, that says, like, I care more about how I'm perceived than, like, creating the art you know it's like you don't even put it out there for a second you don't even see what anybody else thinks about it before you panic and feel self-conscious and like put in the effort to buy all those followers so in that case like i might unfollow that person but for me too it's like like i remember these things you know it's like i don't want to remember these things but every time i see their posts in my feed i'm just gonna think about that and then that thought is then gonna overtake the art which 
I know isn't a good thing because I do just want to be there to be inspired. I don't want the drama, but I cannot help what my brain focuses on. So I would say, yes, that would taint the way that I saw that person. And I probably would end up unfollowing them eventually. Maybe not immediately. Yeah. It's funny you say that because that's almost exactly my journey with this is that I didn't unfollow. I will say at first I didn't unfollow just because I knew this little secret. Yeah, so yeah. Every time it's exciting now. Posted, yeah. I'm like, I see something here. Hmm. You know, so I didn't unfollow for a while. And then after I kind of got that out of my system, I got to that same point that you were talking about. Like, it has nothing to actually do with the photograph. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of scammers and bots on Instagram where they're actually stealing someone else's art or like mm -hmm. photographers who are ripping off other people's ideas and passing mm -hmm. them off as their own. And that's, egregious right and but that's also within the art itself the, the art here is being made in in an honest way i guess right mm -hmm. there's honesty in the art and the art is beautiful but every time i see the art now i think about that and it's hard for me to separate them so i got to that exact place you were talking about where every time i saw the pictures that's all i thought about was how important the likes are to this person mm -hmm. and it didn't serve me in the way that I want to have fun on Instagram. I didn't yeah. like constantly being reminded of it, you know, and I beautiful way to put it. I eventually did unfollow just because I thought I don't want to have to think about this thing every time I see these pictures, even though I truly yeah. enjoy them. Well, you know, I have a counter question for you. Yeah. You mentioned something about even though the art is honest, maybe the perception of them isn't. How do we know? It's like if they are, I don't know, I just want to assume it's insecurity that like makes somebody do this because like really like what does having like a large number under one photo mean? People like see it for a second and scroll past and probably don't go back again. So like what really doesn't matter except to that person? So it's like how do we know that the images were created with earnest intention? One of the things that I thought about when I was thinking through this was I think I would have judged this person less harshly if they were also running a business through their Instagram, uh -huh. if they were selling prints, if they had some kind of partnership with brands. So it was important that it looked, uh -huh. I, I, I would be less judgmental about that because I respect the hustle, you know? I like, actually agree. It's like, you can kind of see like, yeah. you know, you need a reason to like put your shit out there and get it in front of a number of people that like has a purpose. Right. In terms of what I could see in their bio, there were no links to other stores or things like that, you know, so it didn't seem that this was a professional Instagram mm -hmm. as much as it purely was just a personal art Instagram. Yeah, I would have respected that hustle more than I respected the getting the likes truly just for appearance sake, because I can't think of another reason. It's kind of like instead of paying for therapy, they're paying for a different way to feel better. I mean, they, you're not wrong. They're paying for dopamine hits, right? Because yeah, that's, that's what the lights yeah. are at the end of the day. But for me, when I think about that, I don't think that dopamine would hit the same thing if I was paying for it. So I wanted to see how other people felt. Yeah. I posted on my stories the, the following poll question. You follow we love the data. Yeah, I brought we're detectives we're crunching numbers we're hit, we're pounding pavement we're putting can't, in work. can't have detectives without data huh. you follow a photographer whose work you really like one day you discover they buy most of their like from bot farms do you unfollow them yes or no do you want to guess what the poll ended up i would guess that 
more people agreed with what we said just now. Like they would likely unfollow that person. What do you think the split might be? Ooh, I want to say 70 unfollow, 30 unfollow. It was 55% unfollow, 45% follow. Oh, fascinating. I also thought that was interesting. Interesting. I'm just curious about people's perspectives. I mean, I would love to not care that much. Believe me. I want to know the secrets. Not very many people followed up. From what I remember, the comments were really just like maybe asking follow-up questions, which was mm -hmm. not allowed. No, yeah. <laughs> they don't get to find out who. Yeah, this is yeah. A lot of people <laughs> wanted to know who. And also a lot of people wanted to know how, which is this a good time to talk about how I did it? Ooh, let's solve the mystery. Walk us through your case. Wow. So the first thing you'll want to do if you suspect that someone might be buying likes, go to that person's feed, you know, and turn on the notifications for when they post because you want to be oh, able to get in there early. Never okay? would have guessed that this would be the first step. It makes sense, got, though. You got to get in there early because what I discovered mm -hmm. when I was like, I want to figure out if I can catch this guy. I get those spam things a lot. Yeah. Let's say buy a hundred likes. They always go into your spam folder and I clear it out every now and again because I'm a real notifications <laughs> crazy person. They all need to be clean. I clicked on one to see what the details were. And mm -hmm. it was like, you just send over the link and then it's like a hundred likes are this much, 200 or this much, whatever. Oh. So I thought, okay, so you have to send over the link. That means oh. it has to be posted organically first. Oh. And then at some point you'll purchase your likes and then they'll start coming in once the transaction goes through. Could take a few minutes. Who knows, oh. right? Okay. So you get in early and you go over the picture. So it's kind of like in its own page, like so you can keep refreshing it. Every time you refresh it, take a screenshot. Hmm. Data. Data. So you can go back and look because it'll mm -hmm. say posted 10 minutes ago, posted 20 minutes ago. What I noticed when I started refreshing was a very organic amount of likes. In my experience of posting a photograph on Instagram, a lot come through in the first hour. Mm -hmm. Probably most of them come through in the first three hours. Mm -hmm. And then it peters off until, you know, you post your next one. I'm seeing like what I would consider organic likes. Like uh, it went from five to 17 within mm -hmm. three minutes. Yeah. You know? Seems it's normal. Yeah. At the top of people's feeds right now. Then after about 15 to 20 minutes, we start jumping by hundreds. Oh, that first jump is crucial because you want to go in and you'll be able to easily tell which are the bots just by doing a few click throughs. Oh, see, my question was, sorry to jump in there. Yes. Like, how do you know if it like made it to the explore feed or something? I've never had a photo made to explore feed, so I don't know what it's like, but I would imagine if it like gets pushed into a place where millions of people that don't even follow you would go, maybe that could happen. Yes. And that's why these first few minutes where the jumps start to happen are crucial uh, because you'll be able to easily see who the new ones who liked it were. And when uh, you start clicking through and going to their pages, they will have zero followers. They will either be following zero people or maybe like 10 people. They'll have oh, yes. either no profile picture or maybe one picture that is also the same as their profile picture. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you've seen them. Bots oh, follow. Yeah. I mean, because bots follow people all the time. I'm not okay. saying if you have a bot in your account, like you're up to some sus stuff. I'm not mm -hmm. saying that at all. But when a hundred bots like your photo the same minute, yeah. I am saying I'm seeing sus. 
Oh, no, that makes sense. Yeah, because I get like a handfuls of bots all the time, but right. it's never like a, a complete flooding of them at once. Right. Yes, exactly. Mm. So then and then for it kind of went like that for the next hour, every 10 minutes or so, it would go up by another 100 until it reached its like 2100 likes. Oh, man. So that's how I did it. And I won't be telling you who it was. But I will say I will say that since then, I've also discovered a second person doing it. Oh, juicy. You know, I want to know. Yeah. What about if we guess? No. No, no, no. <laughs> this is all about uh, theoretical shaming and not specific shaming. It's not illegal, you know, but I'm just saying also if someone notices and points it out, that's also not illegal. So facts. Yeah. Now I want to ask how much money do you think this person spent on their likes? From what I remember, the likes are not expensive. It's probably uh -huh. like five dollars for a thousand likes. It's I'm not affordable yeah. dopamine. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it might be one of the more affordable dopamines. I mean yeah, that sounds great. I would say there are no better words to say case closed. I think we closed this case. Well done, detective. Well done. And now all you at home detectives can solve your own cases too. So if you suspect something fishy about a person, open it up, do your round. It's fun. Think about it. How it, you know, I'm very curious for other people's feedback, how they would feel in that scenario, finding someone that they like and admire their photography to be padding their likes. Would it affect your perception of them or not? I'm curious. Yeah, I'm curious too. All right. Well, let's let's close this case file and, and go eat some dinner. <laughs> All right. Case closed. Until next time. The video is produced by Jess Hobbs. Stand apart from your typical dude behind the desk YouTube videos. Hers are cinematic. They tell a story. They're a quiet meditation. Her photography is simple and elegant. And today on All Through a Lens, we're talking with her. So, Jess, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, you seem to be doing so many things. You're a YouTuber, a film photographer, a podcaster, a writer, and a farmer. So which came first, the photographer or the farmer? Well, first off, thank you so much for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. So I actually had to think about this for a little while, but I realized that, yes, film photographer came first. Um, <laughs> I was given a camera for my ninth birthday. Uh, so, I mean, I wasn't taking myself seriously at nine years old. Uh, it was just like this little plastic point and shoot. Uh, my dad liked to call it my dummy proof camera, so I couldn't screw it up. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> and I carried that thing with me everywhere I went. It went to college with me, went to every party, high school, everywhere. Like through university, I took a few darkroom classes. And so it was about 2014, 2015, I started taking film photography itself more seriously. Um, I actually started thinking like, hey, this is something that I'm all right at and I really like to do. So I want to keep doing it. Mm -hmm. um, writing is has kind of always been there too. So that's why it was hard to think of what came first. Because writing like I always used to love writing short stories uh we always had this one exam at the end of the year and it's so weird to love an exam but it was we had to write a short story and it had to be like a certain amount of uh, words and you had to have like your your skeleton and your plot and everything and I that was like my favorite exam to do <laughs> uh, and it came in handy because I did my degree in history and sociology so I had a whole lot of writing to do 
to to finish that one. And so now I just kind of write more casually. Like I don't write really for my well, to say I don't write for myself is kind of silly because um, obviously I like to do it, but uh, I don't write like my own blog. Uh, everything I do, I send. Uh, usually to Emulsive. Um, <laughs> M is fantastic at publishing all of my stuff. And so usually my stuff gets sent there. And so that's where a lot of my writing goes. And I've been writing, I've been like maintaining the blog for Dora Goodman and I'm their copywriter. Oh. Uh, so yeah, so now I actually get paid to do it, which is really awesome. So then comes the farming. That's where this one falls in. And I actually just fell right into it. I hmm. never planned on being a farmer. I never, like, if you'd asked me when I was 15, what are you going to do? I, farmer would have been like the last thing on my mind. <laughs> um, I grew up in not like a small, small town, but you know, 50, 60,000 people. So, you know, it wasn't really a farming community. Um, but it was when I met Jody, my, my other half, his family has a farm. Uh, they've had an organic farm since the seventies. And so we just kind of started helping out, you know, sometimes summers or in between jobs and stuff. And then it just got to the point where we said, Hey, let's help his parents kind of retire. Uh, cause children are farmers retirement plans. Yep. And so we've been kind of doing that, uh, more over the last few years, like more, much more involved. Um, and then YouTube came along. You're busy. <laughs> yeah, it's really busy. And, uh, so summers, it's the farm. 100% yeah. the farm takes over. Mm. Um, so then, like, by the time fall hits, usually that's when I'm, like, raring to go. Like, okay, let's do the YouTube channel. Let's let's film some videos. I've got all these ideas. They've been sitting there all summer long, like, marinating in my brain. Let's just get out there and shoot a bunch of cameras and go crazy. Of course, me being me, I'll also write an article to go along with the video that I'll publish on Emulsive. Yeah. So then M sets up the time so that they get published at exactly the same time. And then all my photos come out with it. And yeah, and then that's just like total chaos for like a couple of weeks. And then I'm like, well, that wasn't much of a break from the farm work. <laughs> <laughs> well, so speaking of photography, your style is uh, different from like different format from most film photographers that are on YouTube. Uh, what has influenced your videos? Like I'm sure every YouTuber when they started said, I'm going to do something different. And so I, I do like to think that maybe I did do something different. And so I succeeded at that. I, I think most of it just comes from, for me, motivation. Like motivation is just the hardest thing to find. You know, I always look for content that motivates me, that inspires me, that makes me want to just show things differently. Um, I do know that for sure, the pandemic had a big impact on last year's videos. I was just in a point in my life where I was just kind of sad because I couldn't go anywhere. I was watching people on YouTube travel all over and I was and in Quebec, we, we've had very strict laws throughout the pandemic. So I couldn't go anywhere. And I was like, well, this is a chance to actually like kind of take some of that, I guess, hopelessness and despair and turn it into video. I guess my main influence, though, is just that I've always loved storytelling. Um, when I was a kid, I used to sit beside my mom like we um, we used to have uh, vegetable gardens. And so I would sit while my mom would like weed and I would just tell her the most outrageously ridiculous stories just to get her to laugh. And there's always a story to tell. Sometimes, yeah, it's about the film. Sometimes it's about the camera or sometimes it's about a place or sometimes it's just I'm feeling this way. So let me tell you about it. So both YouTube and Instagram seem to foster the idea that we must produce and share art at a, a pretty much constant level. Failure to do so is kind of punished by the algorithm. 
Uh, first, do you find that to be true? I mean, I don't like to blame everything on the algorithm, but at the same time, like whether we like it or not, yeah, it plays a big part of how much we get seen, uh, how much our videos get suggested. Um, it's really easy to fall through the cracks. On Instagram, you have to use the right hashtags. On YouTube, in your description, you have to use the right uh, search engine optimization words. Um, you know, like you, you, you need to have all this in your back pocket so that your stuff will be found and then shared. The best way to get it out there is to just keep putting stuff up. Instagram, maybe every day, and then YouTube, God, I couldn't imagine doing 365 videos, uh, you know, one every day. Um, I can't even do one every week, to be honest. Just that alone is very difficult. But you, you, you need to use like all the right words, the right thumbnails, you know, so whether we like it or not. Yeah, the algorithm definitely plays a role in how much we're seen. How do you deal with that? <laughs> I don't. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. I, I just do me. Like, I can't imagine what 52 videos in a year looks like to put something yeah. up every week. Like, I really commend people who can. Well, I don't have the time and I don't really have the brain space. Some of my videos I've had in my head for a couple of years. And uh, some of my videos are just like, hey, today I feel like shooting a video and I've got this film. Let's go out and do it. And even for Instagram, like I'll do binges uh, where I'll share every single day for like three months and then I won't share at all. But yeah, I, I guess I just kind of stay true to me, my crazy chaotic self, and put stuff out when I have it and go silent when I don't. I mean, you do some gear reviews and they, they bring you, I assume, more traffic. Yeah, definitely. Gear reviews are a tricky thing because mm -hmm. there's a lot of them out there. They are extremely important. They're very, very useful. You need them when they're there. But they're, those are actually really time consuming to film. Really? More so than like a, like a narrative? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on your style too. Like uh, a lot of people tend to do more of like the vlog style when they do uh, gear reviews. So mm -hmm. where they'll, they'll like super edit their words. And so the frame like cuts, like you see their edits. Yeah. Whereas for me, I prefer to actually try to get through an entire speech all at once. Like the camera goes on and I don't stop talking. I, we don't cut it up. We don't uh, take anything out. All the ums are natural. All like everything just it's from beginning to end, which is so, so hard sometimes because yeah, I've got be. I'm like, OK, I've got these five things to remember. And I'm like, yes, I got through my speech. Excellent. And then Jody's <laughs> like, no, you forgot that. <laughs> You're like, oh. oh, wow. Darn. Like, OK. <laughs> all right. Let's suck it up and uh, <laughs> do it again. <laughs> How have your objectives changed with the channel since you first started? Okay, so this one is actually like the hardest question Good. for me to answer. I really had to think about this one. I think I sat staring off into space for about an hour <laughs> thinking about this one. Oh, nice. Because um, I, I kind of had to think back over like why I started the channel. Um, the best I can come up with is that I don't think my objectives have changed. <laughs> That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, it's because, like, when I started the channel, I started it because it just seemed like such a fun thing to do. Jody had started his channel. Uh, he does he does one uh, on farming. Like, he does a vlog on farming. Awesome. And, yeah, like, so our little adventures through 
organic farming and stuff. And so he started his about a year before I started mine. And it just looked like so much fun. And I was like, well, I could do that. I really just wanted to share my passion and enthusiasm for film photography because at the time it was, I mean, this was four years ago. So it was already kind of like making a comeback, but we had a lot of announcements of discontinued films and this and that and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, it was at a time where I was like, I just want to like inspire people to grab cameras, especially film cameras and, and shoot. And maybe we can like make it a thing again. So I think for me, it's just always stayed the same. I think that that's why I still want to keep doing the channel. I do it very sporadically. I'm not a regular contributor, but I'm going to do it in my way. And that way is just always going to be a lot of fun, no matter what I do, whether I do gear reviews again or film reviews or more uh, cinematic style, you know, mini movie type things. They're always fun for me. I always just wanted to find a community as well. And YouTube does help with that because people will write comments on your videos. And so you start to get to know people and they'll reach out to you and stuff. So I started to find a bit of a community. And those are the best parts about it for me. I, I never started it to make money. Like, I'm sorry, you don't make money on YouTube. You're not going to make like, you're not going to get rich <laughs> on YouTube. I don't care who you are. <laughs> when YouTube announced that they were going to start uh, putting ads on anyone's videos, whether you were a small creator or a big creator, um, that's when I said, okay, well, if you're going to make some money off me, well, I'm going to make a little bit of money off of you. Um, to be honest, I haven't even been paid out yet. <laughs> wow. So, okay. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, don't, don't do YouTube because you want to make a lot of money. Um, do YouTube because it's a lot of fun and you enjoy doing it. Maybe it'll return in like selling some books later or some prints, but it's not going to, I'm not going to make money off of YouTube. It is important that there are women photographers on YouTube because it is definitely male dominated. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I definitely think that it's important for female voices to be on YouTube. It, it, I mean, we are a part of the community, uh, whether everyone likes that or not. <laughs> we're here, damn it. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, I, I just thought that at the time, I mean, I, I really don't want this to come off sounding like pretentious or douchey or anything, but I just thought maybe I had something to offer. Maybe my enthusiasm and my passion for film photography would come through and people would get inspired and enjoy what I have to say and show. And so far it has been working out pretty well for me. I, I looked at uh, a lot of the comments on your videos and YouTube is notorious for I mean, it's it's pretty bad in a lot of places, but everybody was yeah. just like so sweet and so receptive, and so supportive. That's that's a feat in um, uh, that's a feat in itself. Yeah, seriously, definitely. Uh, to be honest, when I started my channel, like my first video went up and I hit the publish button, and I was just like, literally shitting my pants. <laughs> Sorry for the <laughs> crass image, but I was just like, I'm so gonna get ripped apart. Because I was, I would watch, I would watch like Matt Day or Thomas Heaton uh, do videos where they would read out mean comments. And I was like, oh my God, I am so going to just get crapped on like big time. And I'm a woman, so it's just going to be even worse. And then people were super nice and super supportive. And I, I just couldn't believe it. I, I mean, yeah, for sure. I do have some of the more negative stuff. Um, I remember one time someone said that I drink, I obviously drink too much coffee and I should maybe see a doctor. And I was just like, <laughs> okay, whatever, <laughs> you know? Ha -ha. Um, and I, I have had a few comments I've had to take down for being like racist. 
Uh, so anything that's like racist or sexist or homophobic or whatever, you're not going to see that. So if that ever appears, it's it's gone. But I have been really lucky that for the most part, uh, people are genuinely pretty nice in my YouTube comments. (laughs) We've we've had quite a a lot of support as well. So that's, that's, it's nice to know that the photography community can be supportive when it wants to be. Like your your first video was the, the Battle of the 3200s, right? You watch that video, your first video, and you watch some of your most recent videos, and you can definitely see the seeds, you know, uh, how you've grown from the, you know, basically street shooting to your meditative forest shooting of your, like your, your autumn series, um, going from a, a film review to a review of the woods, essentially. How did it become a meditation? Like, where did that come from? Uh, well, so at the time when I did the first video, I was still living in Montreal. Um, and so it was a lot easier to do this, to do the city stuff back then. And usually, uh, like the farm wasn't full time for us yet. Uh, so we would spend summers on the farm and winters in the city, uh, at our office jobs, like the filming would happen on our days off. And it was always in the city because we had our cats to go back and check on. Uh, so we'd be like, Hey, let's just film a video while we're at it. (laughs) <laughs> and then we made the move to the country right at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, like <laughs> they were like, this is happening. And we were like, okay, we're gone. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> we're out of here. Um, so now we're much more immersed in the small town life as well. Oh, I've always photographed in the woods. Mm. You just didn't see that side of it at the time. The woods for me is what I call my lifetime project. Uh, That's something that I'm just going to work on forever and ever and ever because for me, the woods are just so beautiful. I feel at home. Like it feels like that's where my soul belongs is with the trees and animals and stuff. Uh, Sorry to sound really hippie and weird, but I love it. I'm like, I'm all about it. Yeah. Like that's, that's just where I feel the most alive. Because I'm always there, there's certain things that I see, there's certain things that I feel. So then that starts to come through. And I think maybe that might even be coming through in like my hometown series where I go back to where like the town that I was born in and even like the corner store being torn down. I think that that meditation that I bring from the woods is actually starting to translate more and more into the rest of my work now. We talk about trees all the time because Eric seems to not be able to, like, know how to shoot trees. You, you just have to be around them. You know, okay, again, I'm going to bring out the hippie talk, but you got to hug them. You got to you gotta <laughs> talk to them. You got to just, you know, say, hey, tree, how are you doing today? Even, But even for me, that's how I'm starting to evolve in the woods. I'm starting, rather than pulling one tree out and saying, this is my subject, mm-hmm. now I'm starting to see the forest for the whole. I love that. But when I get into the woods, and we've got woods here. I live in the Pacific Northwest. You know, we have thick, amazing woods. woods. Yeah. Yeah. And when I get there, I'm just like, well, not a picture here. It's super chaotic, though. Like, it took me a long time to get comfortable shooting in the woods. At first, I would have, like, a picture here, a picture there. I would go in with, like, the RB, and out of 10 shots, I would have maybe, like, two or three that were okay. Yeah. It's just trees and branches and everything everywhere. And you're like, how do I make sense of this? And then as you start going in more and more, you start to actually see patterns and see things. And you're like, okay, now I can kind of make sense of this. Like, okay, in the spring, there's no leaves. Cool. I'll yeah. photograph only in the spring. So you do that. And then after a while, you start like photographing in the summer. And you're like, okay, cool. Now my hard part is the winter. I find it hmm. so chaotic to shoot trees in the snow. 
So no, when we started doing the podcast, it really affected the way we shot, especially with Dev Party. We you know, had to shoot for, for the mic, really. Uh, how has the YouTube channel affected your photography? My favorite thing about watching other people's YouTube channels or going through their Instagram feeds is seeing how they evolve over time. Because I think as photographers, you always have something new to learn. You, you, I don't think you can ever know it all. Uh, I think that there's just always something there, some way you can push yourself, some, some new technique you can try, a new film, whatever it is. There's always a way to learn. There's always a way to grow. And I like to see that evolution through other people's work. And so I think I tried to bring that forward for myself as well to show my evolution, to show how I'm growing both as a photographer and as a person. Do you still have your first role? Yes. That's I so have cool. everything. Oh, that's so cool. I never threw anything out. Uh, so this looks like our last question. Uh, how do you hope that your videos have affected the photography of your viewers? I think that the best thing about YouTube is because it's so visual, you can show people your world. And so I really hope that I just inspire people to grab a camera and get out. So if they're having a hard time, can't get off the couch, you know, or just struggling through life, you know, I really hope that it's the inspiration that they take away. Luckily, I have had some comments like that where people have told me like, hey, I wasn't going to do anything today. And I watched your video on, you know, your fall series or this series or, or whatever. And like, that made me want to get up today. And that's the coolest thing. Like, that's what I always hope carries forward. It's weird how we're short on inspiration, you know, like, because you can find gear reviews everywhere. And while they're super important, they're not necessarily the most inspiring videos to watch. They're not necessarily going to make you get up and go shoot. Most of the time, they just make me say, damn it, now I want another camera. (laughs) You know, and then I'm I'm sad because I'm like, well, I'm broke. So I guess that's not going to happen for a while. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like that's and that that's why like I'll still do some gear reviews, but I'll always do them in my own way. I'll do them in a way that like I'm out in the field. Uh, so that you can actually see the camera being used. Because I think that, again, that's more inspiring than just, hey, I'm going to sit at this desk and talk to you about this camera. Uh, so that's about it. But uh, before we go, what what can we look forward to? Just a lot more enthusiasm from me. I <laughs> 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 yeah, I, and I just hope that I always bring my passion forward. Uh, I hope that in every single thing that I do, whether it's writing, whether it's my photography, whether it's even just writing captions on Instagram photos, uh, my YouTube channel, everything that I do, I hope I always carry forward uh, just the enthusiasm and passion for film photography. And if even one kid or one person says, hey, I picked up a film camera because of you, that I've, I've made it, you know? Yeah. <sighs> All right. Well, so where can everybody find you? Um, all your handles. Okay. So, well, on YouTube, it's just YouTube slash Jess Hobbs. Instagram is at Jess Hobbs Photo. And I'm on Twitter at Jess Hobbs Photo as well. Awesome. And that's it for now. Well, Perfect. and I guess some articles on Emulsive, maybe even some other websites might pop up. Dora Goodman. Ooh. All right. Well, <sighs> Jess, we're going to let you go. Um, but it was absolutely wonderful having you on well thank you so much for having me this was a lot of fun uh i love talking photography so if you like hearing about photography yep you're in the right place (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) 
we'll probably have to do another like RB67 like episode at some point. So we will have you on that. <laughs> have you on that list? Uh, that camera, I can, yeah, I can talk about that camera all day long, mm-hmm. every day. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you for having me. This was awesome. Yeah, I really it enjoyed it. It was. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. This past summer, I went to the Custer County Museum in Broken Bow, Nebraska to see their Solomon Butcher exhibit. I talked a bit about that on the podcast last year. But while I was there, the woman running the museum asked me a few questions about photography. So there was a display of various vintage photography chemicals and darkroom supplies, and she asked me if I knew what they were. I did, you know, for the most part, and I explained a little bit about each and how they were used. And she asked a few other questions, mostly about like what was happening chemically to the film. And I was really at a loss. I had no real idea there. It's funny. We do this all the time, but do we really know how it works? I mean, developing makes sense. You add a liquid to a thing and it becomes another thing, just like baking. But apart from sunburns, there's really not anything we can just add light to and change chemically. And yes, photosynthesis, but we're talking instantaneously here. So we dug into it and now feel basically qualified because, you know, we have a podcast and all, to explain it. We're going to try to keep things simple, fun, and see if we even accomplish either of those. Yeah, I I guess we're qualified now. Let's start with grain. The one thing almost everybody loves about film is grain. Some like chunky grain, some like smooth grain, but we all love grain in some way, shape, or form. It's something that digital can't really replicate, at least for now. AI will eventually be able to do that. And and the reason why a lot of photographers prefer film to digital is, is grain. But what the hell is it? Our film images are made up of tiny dots. Look real close, like under a magnifying glass. And you'll see the images on our negatives are made up of millions of tiny dots. Some film emulsions have huge grain bigger dots. Others, almost not even distinguishable. Super tiny dots. Sort of somewhat like pixels that make up a digital image. Grain makes up our film images. That's true. Great. But what is grain? So the individual bits of grain on our negatives are actually metallic silver clumps. Grain is clumps. Never forget it. Clumps forever. Just how this grain forms and how both light and the developer change it is what we'll be talking about today. But first, since grain lives on film, what is film? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) so we all know what film is, but what is it made out of? Think of film as a open face sandwich of sort. That's, and it's it's disgusting because open face sandwiches they piss me off. They're not sandwiches. It's sort of like calling a cupcake an open face layer cake. It's just put another fucking piece of bread on Jesus, it. Jesus. Okay. Whatever. I'm serious. This is, this is okay. Okay. Well, but, we're still going to think of it as an open face sandwich anyways, because fine. I don't care what you think. Let's divide film up into layers. The emulsion and base. Space, this space, is space. a simplification, but whatever. 
Yeah, well, going back to that open face sandwich idea, the base of the film would be the bread. Think of it as the bread. The base is this, the, the, the polyester or acetate, transparent, plasticky thing that we generally would, would think of what film was like. Now comes the rest of the ingredients, which are laid atop the bread. <laughs> We're never going to get rid of this open face thing. Or coated on top of the base. First is the gelatin, which acts as a transparent binding layer. Then comes the silver halide crystals. This is where the magic lives, and it's really important, so let's stop here for a second. Uh, yeah, probably more than a second. This is really important. Silver halide is a salt, like the salt, not, not quite like the salt you put on fries. So it's made up of silver and some other halogen element like bromide or chlorine or iodine, and it all depends on the type of emulsion that you're, that you're using. Uh, since silver halide is a salt, that means it is a crystal. But these crystals don't need to be charged in moon water. They're mm -hmm. much more powerful. <laughs> They're much more powerful than that. The big difference is these crystals actually work. They're photosensitive. They can capture light. And when changed with chemicals, they reveal what our little photo boxes have captured. It's like magic. Except that it's real because it's science. The silver halide grains are crystalline structures of silver ions and halide ions in a lattice structure. It's a kind of cubic structure. And over the top of this silver halide gooped, clumped onto the gelatin is, <laughs> according to the diagrams, an anti-scratch layer that, I mean, anybody who's handled film I'm not 100% sure it's actually there. And that's it, at least as far as black and white film goes. Color film works basically the same way, though they have a few additional layers of dyed silver halide crystals to produce color negatives. Okay, so that's film. All right, pop quiz time. No, we're not going to do that. <laughs> just That'd be awful. I just want to make sure people are paying attention. They're not. So... Now that we have our film, we can load it into our cameras and we can take a picture, right? So what happens when we take the picture, chemically speaking, not in our brains, but on the actual film? When the film containing silver halide crystals is exposed to light, the crystals get triggered, but on an atomic level. Let's zoom into a single grain of silver halide salt crystal. Each crystal of silver halide has thousands of electrically charged silver atoms inside of it. When a photon, a particle of light, hits the silver halide crystal, a very small part of the crystal is turned into what is called a sensitivity speck. Basically, the grain is marked as being exposed to light. The sensitivity speck is actually a molecule of metallic silver. Ooh. Now, I love shooting low ISO. Give me 25 ISO film and I'm happy forever. But others like shooting something like Delta 3200. My film is slow, their film is fast, but what does that mean chemically? So the slow film requires more exposure to light to get a reaction. This means that the shutter needs to be open for longer. The fast film requires less light to get a reaction, and that means that the shutter has to be incredibly quick. Yeah, so slow-speed films like Ilford Pan F50 uh, are made with very small grains of silver halide. This is known as fine grain. 
fast speed films like Ilford HP5 are made with larger grains, and this is known as coarse grain. Chemically speaking, the silver halide used in high-speed film has a lower threshold for when the sensitivity spec is created. It takes less light and thus less time. Slow speed has a higher threshold. It takes more light and thus more time. But regardless of the film speed, the grains hit with the most light are marked with these metallic silver sensitivity specs, and the grains hit with less light are not. And what we are left with now is a latent image. After taking the picture, that's what's on our film. But it hasn't been developed yet, so it is, like we said, a latent image. But to be clear, it is not yet an image. If you could somehow remove the film, obviously without destroying it from your camera, and look at it, you wouldn't really see any change at all. The reason is because almost no change has actually occurred. Sorry. Oh, is that the spooky part? No, I don't know if it's spooky. (laughs) When you look at the film, you can't see a latent image with your eyes. But that's why we've got Developer. And if you haven't listened to Dev Party, uh, where the fuck have you been? Because we talk about developer all the time. But we've got oodles of different kinds of developers, but they all basically essentially do the same thing. When the developer comes into contact with a latent image, it chemically alters parts of the emulsion, the exposed parts. It does almost nothing to the unexposed crystals. Think back to those tiny metallic silver sensitivity specks within a single grain of silver halide crystal. The developer seeps into the emulsion and latches onto the metallic silver molecule, the speck, and reduces, in big quotes mark, that's what it's called, reducing, the entire crystal, the entire grain surrounding that speck. All of that becomes metallic silver. This creates what we can now see on our film as grain. I feel like I'm in my sixth grade reproductive class right now. (laughs) That's what it sounded like to me. A developer does this through the developing agent. Chemicals like metal, phenidone, and hydroquinine all each do this in a similar-ish way. In caffeinol, caffeic acid as well as ascorbic acid, vitamin C, is the developing agent. Many developers use two different developing agents at the same time for something called super additivity, basically a way to get each developing agent to develop better together than they do alone. So like when we can't do a project ourselves, it's not DIY, we do it together. So it's DIT. But there are drawbacks no matter which developing agent are used. Film developing is basically a series of give and take. While developing agent turns the silver halide crystals into metallic silver on its own, it's a slow process and prone to oxidation. Which is why we have other ingredients in the developer. So to take care of the slowness, we have the aptly named accelerators. Usually this is a chemical like sodium hydroxide or sodium carbide or even sodium sulfite. What these generally do is speed up the developer. Unfortunately, they often speed it up too quickly, which results in shitty grain fogging and poor shelf life for the developer as a whole. To curb some of that, a restrainer is used. That's usually potassium bromide. 
And this was the secret ingredient that I added to my caffeinol mixture to cut fogging. So what's fogging? Fogging is when the developer goes apeshit and starts to accidentally develop unexposed silver halide crystals. Potassium bromide helps stop that. It also slows down the developer, especially in the areas that have the least exposure. What we know as shadow details, you know, those mm. things we always trying to get. So important. And if you have to add one more ingredient to developer, please let it be the preservative. And that is conveniently sodium sulfite, which also makes a fine accelerator. I love saying accelerator. It reminds me of the kids in the hall skit, The Eradicator. I am the Eradicator. <laughs> Preservatives keep the developer from oxidizing so quickly, thus giving us a longer shelf life for the developer. In most cases, the development process is tricky and time sensitive. If you stop development too soon, the developer won't have enough time to reduce all of the grains marked with the sensitivity spec to metallic silver. It will be underdeveloped. But if you leave it in too long, the developer will just keep on trucking, attacking the unexposed grains and turning everything to metallic silver. So really, the developer develops the marked grains first, but will keep attacking the other grains if we're not careful. The times for different developers and different emulsions vary greatly. This all has to do with how quickly the developer works to achieve the perfect development, where all the latent image grains have been developed, but none of the unexposed grains are. Again, this is pretty simplified, but we hope you understand what we're saying. So in the developing process, the next thing is stopping. We just covered stopping in a recent dev party, so we're not going to step on those toes of past Eric and Vanya. I don't want to do that. Essentially, a stop bath changes the pH of the developer, so it's not a developer anymore. A lot of folks use an acid stop, though using just water is fine too. Either will do the trick. And you know, don't don't fight us on this. We're, we know what we're talking about here. Water with a pH of seven is acidic enough to stop the developer, we promise. And so the final chemical that's essential to film development is the fixer. It's also called hypo, which was incidentally the name of William Henry Jackson's mule. Anyway, fixer's job is to dissolve the unexposed and undeveloped silver halide crystals. Since silver halide is not dissolvable in water, you need fixer. This will leave your negative looking like a true negative. Most of the dark ground that you photographed will be fixed away, leaving it as it should look on the negative, nearly transparent. But most of the light sky is dark on the negative, which means it's metallic silver. The fixer can't touch that, basically. If you skip the fixing step, your photos will look pretty fucked up, but will also still be photosensitive. Any unfixed areas will soon darken and your entire photo will be gone. Fixer is made up of a few different chemicals, the main one being the fixing agent. Mm, imagine that. This is usually sodium theosulfate or ammonium theosulfate. There are actually debates over which is better and we don't care. All that matters is that the fixing agent removes the unexposed and thus undeveloped crystals. The only downside is that sodium or ammonium theosulfate alone is too easily contaminated. And that's why we have some other ingredients. 
which is where an acid comes in. Usually that's acetic acid. This usually helps to fully stop the development, which honestly should have been stopped by now anyway. Unfortunately, this acid also disintegrates the fixer solution. And that's why we need a preservative <laughs> again. And what better preservative is there? Everyone all together, sodium sulfite, <laughs> yay. This sodium sulfite wonder single-handedly prevents the acid from disintegrating the fixer. Thanks. Though it is not used much anymore, older films required or at least benefited from hardening fixer. This is regular fixer with a hardener in it. This literally hardens the emulsion and allows it to swell less. Usually it's potassium alum. Unfortunately, these hardeners kill the acidity of the fixer and we have to add a buffer to maintain acidity. That's usually boric acid. While it's pretty difficult to do so, there is some slight danger of overfixing if you leave the film in the fixer for too long, like double or triple the time. I mean, you kind of really have to fuck up to do this. Too long on the fixer and the fixing agents will start to dissolve everything, the little bastards. That covers most fixers. There is another, the alkaline fixer. We both recommend this over rapid fix because it's easier to wash, requiring about half of the water compared to rapid fixer. And who knows? how little compared to a actual hardening fixer. Alkaline fixers use ammonium theosulfate and not much else, so they smell like cat pee. You can add sodium sulfite and make them less alkaline, and so they'll smell, I wouldn't say better, I guess a little bit better than cat pee, like less cat pee. The one we recommend is TF4 by Photographer's Formulary. The cool thing about alkaline fixers is that they cannot dissolve any bit of the grain with metallic silver in them. And that means there's not really such a thing as overfixing with them. So one of the cool things about fixers is that what's left over, what it takes out, it's kind of left in the solution. Yes, and that is actually a ton of the silver. And when I was going to school at Otis, I was actually dumping my old fixer there because they had this huge barrel of it. And then every couple months, once it was filled, they would take it to, I don't know, some special place and they would actually extract the silver out of it. Yes, so you can and should extract the silver out of your fixer before dumping it or preferably don't dump it, but you can extract the fixer. There are ways to do that um, that are kind of chemically interesting involving, I think, steel wool. So look into that. We're not going to get into that now. Honestly, we probably should have. That's sort of interesting, but we didn't. We're going to move on to something for the called next, washing. Yeah, for the for next the, episode. We will do an entire episode on how to remove silver from your fixer. We're not going to do that. But now we're going to talk about something that, that not a lot of people do, which is using a washing aid. So some really persnickety people like washing aids, and these are called hypocleaning agents, and they use them after fixing. They consist of sodium sulfite and sodium bisulfite. They're mostly used when printing on paper, and a lot of folks use them for that, and that makes a lot of sense. But some folks use them on film, too. It's claimed that a hypoclearing agent will shorten washing times, but that's only true if you're using a hardening fixer, which most of us aren't, and only when using an acid fixer. So for the easiest and cleanest way to develop and fix, it's real simple. Use a regular developer, just water as a stop bath, and an alkaline fixer like TF4, and then the Ilford washing method, which we've covered ad nauseum on Dev Party. It's cheaper. You're buying less things. You're literally deleting two bottles of things you don't need. But if, if you want to delete one more bottle, 
We've got monobaths. True. So with monobath developers, one solution develops and fixes at the same time. Oh, pretty sneaky, I, sis. This, this sounds easy, and it is, but Eric's not too much of a fan of the monobaths. Uh, they no. remind him of what? The, the TV-VCR combos. Remember those? <laughs> yes. Maybe, maybe a lot of listeners don't, but yeah, I hated them because if your VCR broke, your TV broke too. Your TV broke. <laughs> Your VCR broke. That's just, it was just an awful time in electronics. I had an Emerson TV VCR, so that may have been. That's probably why. So one of my favorite things about developing film is seeing how different developers affect the look of different emulsions. While we explain things in a very basic way here, it's actually pretty complex. All developers aren't the same. Some are wildly different. And though they all do the same basic thing, they reduce the exposed silver halide crystal to metallic silver, the different ways they do it give different looks. Experimenting with this isn't everybody's cup of tea, and that's fine, but I still I still can't recommend monobaths. Just develop regularly. Just develop, stop, fix. It'll make you a better human being and a better photographer. We promise. I mean, your mileage may vary. So now we have our negatives. But what exactly are we looking at? Obviously, it's a negative image where the light sky is nearly black and the dark ground is nearly transparent. The black grain in the negative is metallic silver. Look at it closely. Each grain is a little clump of silver. Amazing. The dark areas of the negative, like the sky, were hit with the most light. Because of that, more of the silver halide crystals were marked in the latent image and then reduced to metallic silver by the developer. These are known as high density areas. The lighter bits of the negative, like the ground, were hit with less light. And because of that, very few of the silver halide crystals were marked in the latent image and few were reduced to metallic silver by the developer. These are known as low density areas. We're not going to go into printing or scanning, but once these negatives are reversed, we have images. So if your final images are too light or too dark or fogged or have shitty grain, you'll sort of know why, at least chemically speaking. So basically that's the science of film. It's pretty basic. So if we did talk about your favorite chemical, don't get in our faces about it. Big apologies to all you Genochrome fans out there. Maybe next time, all right? Knowing a little bit about what's going on in our cameras and developing tanks adds not only to our general fund of knowledge, but adds to our general fun of knowledge. And now you know. And no one is half the battle. G.I. Stay tuned for a very special zine review today on All Through a Lens. Each episode, we here at All Through a Lens review a couple of zines. Now, this episode, we promise something a little different, a little special, and it is. This is not a zine that's been sent in by one of our listeners or by somebody looking for a review. This is a zine from somebody who hasn't produced a zine in well over a century. Two years. <laughs> <laughs> this is Leftlandia, Pure Sand and Water, issue three by Vanya. Our very own Vanya has finally put a fucking zine together. Yay, I did it. It's not the Kansas zine. I apologize, but eh. Uh, well, why don't you tell us a little bit about it? 
Okay. Well, I wasn't actually planning on making this scene. I was planning on making the Kansas scene, which I am still planning on making. But as my brain works, I just woke up one day and was like, hey, I have two trips to Mexico where I shot the same place and I have a lot of pictures and I didn't want to share them all on Instagram. So I decided to make a zine out of it. So that's what I did. And what a zine it is. <laughs> now these go in any particular order? Yes. Yeah. So what, when you start a new emulsion, you'll see on the bottom right hand page uh, what emulsion it was used. Now I'm seeing on some of these, the grain is really huge. And on others, the grain is really small. Mm -hmm. Why is that? <laughs> well, everything that is in this is expired film, number one. Okay. This is using my Pentax 645 and my water housing. And if you guys haven't heard before, I am hoarding 220 because I don't think that anybody was going to make it again, which I might have been mistaken. So fingers crossed on that one. There are particular films that have standed the test of time and have done a lot better and some that haven't done as well. Usually the faster speeds deteriorate a lot faster. Yeah. And they already have bigger grain anyway. Yeah. So I want to say that the Portra 800 was probably the grainiest out of the bunch. People know you as a surf photographer and a lot of surf photographers will stand on a pier or stand on the beach and with a very long lens, but you are in the water, sometimes behind the surfer, sometimes right next to them. Sometimes like they're basically on top of you. This is an incredibly dramatic and action packed with a very shallow depth of field in a lot of cases. You're shooting wide open, really close to these people. Yes. Uh, what lenses are you using? Um, mostly the, I think it's the 75, but I also have a 40 as well, but that is like almost too wide. Okay. I could have used the 40 here, but this area is like, so it's kind of spread apart. So I think everybody would just be tiny. So I mostly just used my 75 and yeah, I shoot pretty shallow depending on the film, because a lot of the film I use is a hundred speed. So I'm shooting anywhere from like 4.5 to f8 but 5.6 is my sweet spot that's my fave okay. uh but that also <laughs> this is a camera from the 90s that doesn't have like this amazing bracketing uh focusing like system so uh it's really really simple to miss a shot and have things out of focus so I have to be very careful this is a huge part of my photography identity and sometimes it's a little bit scary to think like oh my god like <laughs> what if I stop shooting in the water uh I've been so busy with school uh I haven't and going through the zine is exciting because I'm just like oh my god I, I love this so much and I I have to continue doing this and I will because I have that stupid 500 pound Rolly, Roloflex Rolly Marine that I'm working on. So yeah, I, uh, I really love shooting in the water. It's my favorite. I love the perspective. It's, it's unique and different and I absolutely enjoy it. And yes, shooting film can be a pain in the ass. I'm 
I, I can't walk out with a thousand digital images, but you know, we're analog photographers. This is what we do. This is what we, we love. And, um, it just makes me happy. And so I hope that you guys will like it. Um, I, I did actually end up going with a different print company uh, this time. It's a perfect bound. And this it's, is a, this is a book. This is like a monograph. Basically. It's got a, yeah. it's got a fun little like speckly like tone kind of almost like one of those like moleskin um, covers. Uh, it was neat to make. I, was excited about it and now I just need to kind of like continue continue that and and try to try to not take such a large break in between zines because it was really nice to get this in the mail. I was a little nervous about it and I still am of course, but I Well, I think you shouldn't be. This is a really good zine. I mean for for not doing one in 2 years and being I guess slightly out of practice, you're kind of nailing it. You got the arrangement just kind of dead dead on. The photos that you selected were, were really wonderful. I mean, I helped a little bit here and there, but this is this is you. Is this the first scene that you've done with the water housing? Shit, yeah. I think it is. It is. Yeah, so if you've heard her talk a lot about the, the water housing that she has for her Pentax 645, this is the first time these are in print. So I think that's that's kind of a selling point there. That's kind of that sort of makes it worth it there too. Mm-hmm. This is not a, taking a tiny little little disposable waterproof camera out into the ocean. This is a this is an intense rig that you have that you're taking out. Yes, yes, it is. I'm I'm committed. <laughs> <laughs> you are you are committed. This sells for what are you doing? Twenty dollars. I am, and I know that's. Okay. I, I'm still. Don't apologize for that. This I'm is, still uncomfortable uh, with the price, but I I need to I'm, make my money back because I put I put everything on my credit card, and um, I can't really sell it for less. I will not make my money back. <laughs> this is about seventy pages, full color, half size zine. It's perfect bound. It's a book. It's $20 plus a little bit in shipping. It's absolutely worth it. Vanya is not going to say this for her in her own behalf. So I need to jump in here and say this. This is absolutely worth getting. Please do yourself a favor and pick this up. This is 100% Vanya. Everything about this zine is Vanya. If you have any kind thoughts about the woman, anything, <laughs> oh, I kind of like her photography or she seems pretty cool, pick this zine up. You can get it at vanyazask.com and you'll you'll find it there. It's it's under the zines tab, which makes a lot of sense. Or hit her up on social medias. She is there. But definitely pick this up. She's giving me a thumbs up. I think she's a little embarrassed. <laughs> pick by, by your zine. Author Lens is brought to you by our lovely Patreon subscribers. Patreon helps us pay for hosting, books, our newspaper.com account for research, audio equipment, and much, much more. We would like to thank our subscribers for their support. We couldn't do it without you. And this month, we have several new subscribers. And it's been, it's been really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. We have... Claudia B, Trey L, Sarah S, and Ryan A. Hey, come on.
Thank you all so much for your help. We appreciate it more than we can get out verbally without crying a little bit. If you like bonus episodes, full-length interviews, and extra nonsense, you can become a patron subscriber too. You too can do this. We've got three different levels of support, with the cheapest being less than a buck an episode. So head over to patreon.com slash lens for more info. <laughs> Well, Vanya, we've come to the end of another wonderful episode. We have. We have. We did it. I had a really good time here. Thank you. What does the week uh, coming look like for you, photographically speaking? Gosh, I hope something. I've been so sad. I have not really shot much at all. So I need to just set some time uh to do something anything just a tiny little drive somewhere i just i need to shoot something just just a potential yes how about you (sighs) um kind of a potential too i don't know what the weather's been like down there but it's been unseasonably cool up here and because of that the flowers the wonderful wildflowers in eastern washington have not really exploded yet so when I was out there a few weeks ago, it seemed like they were about to pop. And I had just got word a couple days ago that they still seem about to pop. So hopefully this weekend they will pop, but it's going to be cold. So I don't think it's going to be a camping weekend. And I am absolutely dying to get out and camp, especially after that episode we did with Liz. I'm still just like, oh my God, I need to camp. But that's not happening, I don't think. But maybe a day trip and a hike, a little day hike. I'm just, I need to get out. I've been sick. I didn't leave the apartment for five days. Yeah, he's been driving me insane. <laughs> and I don't even <laughs> live with you. <laughs> so yeah, probably that. I also, I need to take something to have something to develop for a dev party. Oh shit, me too. <laughs> oh shit. Aye, aye, aye. Oh man, yeah. Okay, so we have, we have to do something. Have to do something. Thank you for listening to All Through a Lens. If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. And we're at allthroughalens on Twitter, I guess. You can also check out our show notes on allthroughalens.com. Vanya is at surfmartian. And Eric is at conspiracy.of.cartographers. Both on Instagram. And speaking of Instagram, make sure to hashtag your stuff, hashtag All Through a Lens Podcast to be featured. You can find our episodes on Spotify as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell you found this episode. Subscribe there and leave us a review. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. And thank you all so, so much for listening. We love you. See you at the next dev party. How, Vanya? Uh, yes. Well, we need something to develop for a dev party, so do you want to go out and shoot? Okay, I do. Let's go. Knowledge is power!